For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, Lorraine Rivera reports on her trip this week to El Paso. Hear the story of a young woman who came to America with her family as refugees from Mali and the bright future that she has built. And listen to the music of La Circa in an acoustic spotlight session. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. Joining me now is Lorraine Rivera, the host of Arizona 360. This week, Lorraine and a crew went to El Paso, Texas, and they stopped at some places along the way to find out what people living along the U.S.-Mexico border have to say. Thanks for being here, Lorraine. Of course, Mark. So first, tell me about a stop you made in Wilcox. Sure. As we all know, Wilcox is not quite directly on the border. It's located about 60 miles north of the border along I-10. And when people think about Wilcox, they probably think wine or agriculture. For the folks there, they are concerned about any stigma that's associated with border life. They worry about safety and security because oftentimes the tourism office will have people call and say, is it safe to travel because I've seen the media and it looks like um, being along the border is a dangerous place to visit. And they're really trying hard to say it's not. This is a community like any other place. And that's 60 miles north, as you said. So tell me about arriving in El Paso. What what was the first thing you saw? For me personally, the first thing I noticed was just the sheer size of Juarez. If you arrive in El Paso at night, you will see just how large that city is. It's a city of about a million people. El Paso is about uh, 700,000. But just to see the lights and the pollution, you know, something that you probably don't think about when you're driving in. But we immediately traveled over to the Coliseum, which is where the president was scheduled to speak the next day. And there were people uh, selling merchandise, people who were starting to wait in line. And this is something that I understand is common for these rallies that the president hosts. And so on Monday night, what were you hearing from supporters who were there to see President Trump as opposed to those who were there to see Beto O'Rourke speak? To be fair, Mark, there were thousands of people there to see either person. Um, uh, The Beto fans we met with came from Arizona, Texas, New Mexico. Same thing for the Trump supporters. It was cold. It was probably about 40 degrees with a wind advisory. And I I think our crew was impressed to see how long these people had been waiting outside. Some had began gathering um, that sunrise. Um, There were about 7,300 people who eventually entered the Coliseum to see the president. 6,000 stayed outside. Now, these are people who could have very well just gone home, but they chose to stand outside and just watch the president speak from a, a large screen. Uh, The Beto fans were located just a block away, and that was something that was uh, a discussion point with some of the Trump supporters is Beto has placed this town, uh, you know, put it in in a precarious position given that law enforcement is now really being challenged because he didn't have to speak that night. But of course, we know that he did because he wanted to to make um, his presence known. Um, But this is also a homegrown Texan who wanted to be sure that his supporters knew that there was an alternative to what the president was there for. And of course, this all um, on the heels of the president's State of the Union address where he specifically mentioned El Paso. So across the people that you talked to, did anyone express that they felt they were experiencing a crisis on the border? Law enforcement will say this is a crisis because they are processing in the El Paso sector about 300 people a day. In some very remote regions of their area of responsibility, 
they have a group of 200 plus who will very easily walk into the United States. And these agents are tasked with now processing, checking paperwork, ensuring that people are who they say they are. And that challenges their resources. You're bringing in agents from other areas to fill out paperwork. You're attending to the needs of the men, women, and children that have just arrived. And they define it as a crisis because they're concerned about who is arriving, who they say they are, and what their intentions are. If you recall, Mark, the um, Antelope Wells area is in remote New Mexico, and that's where one of the first children who died crossing the border had entered through. This is an area of responsibility for the El Paso sector. When you talk to people who are from El Paso, if they're not directly affected by border enforcement per se, they, they're not necessarily going to define this as a crisis. They've always seen the infrastructure. They've always seen Border Patrol agents. To them, this is nothing new. It's just another part of living life along the border. Did you talk to any officials in El Paso for their assessment? We sure did. We spoke with El Paso Sector. We also spoke with a retired sector chief who spent time in Tucson Sector as well as El Paso. And he's concerned about how long this is sustainable for. El Paso Sector has received in the last few months an influx of Border Patrol agents from other regions to help support. There are some military as well, as you probably heard. New Mexico um, has declined the military presence, but they are asking as a law enforcement arm to say we need more support because what we're doing right now is only sustainable to a certain extent. Well, one question that arises since the wall in El Paso has gotten so much media attention lately is what's the difference that you see between the border wall as it exists in El Paso compared to Nogales? The walls look very similar. As a matter of fact, our photographer noted that. He said, I've seen the wall in Nogales and it looks like the wall in El Paso. What is different about the two regions is that El Paso and Juarez are much larger than the Nogales-Ambos area that we know here of in Arizona. In Nogales, as you've seen, and there's been controversy about the concertina wiring, the barbed wire essentially that um, sort of falls on the north side of the U.S. border. In El Paso, it's not there. This is a preference of the sectors. In the last few months, we've heard from the sector here in the Arizona area that has said that the reason why it's there is because their intelligence that they've gathered has told them that individuals may likely rush the border where people will um, cross very easily, in which case challenging the environment there at the ports of entry. The concertina wiring there is, as the agency has said, as a deterrent. Thanks for giving us your firsthand experience from this week. You can see the stories that Lorraine Rivera and her crew collected on their journey on the next Arizona 360. That's this Friday at 8.30 p.m. and Sunday at 11 a.m. on PBS 6. Estimates say that one in every eight people in the U.S. is black. In Tucson, that number is one in 20. Here, it's common for many black Americans to go days without seeing someone else who looks like them or shares their experiences. Over the coming months, Arizona Public Media will share a range of stories that reveal things you may not know about Tucson's invisible 5 percent. 2018 University of Arizona graduate Umu Keda immigrated to the U.S. from Mali with her family when she was four years old. I interviewed her last July about the effect of the Trump administration's policies regarding travel and citizenship for people from Muslim countries and the effect it was having on the immigrant population here in Tucson. Umu is joined by Abby Hungway, an American citizen from Zimbabwe who is the managing director of Owl and Panther, a special group for refugees and immigrants in Tucson who have been the victims of traumatic dislocation, persecution, and torture. Umu Keda begins. 
I honestly identify as an immigrant to a great extent. It's a very large portion of my identity because my entire life I've had to toggle between my home life and um, my school life, being deeply entrenched in Malian culture at home and contrasting that with American culture everywhere else has kind of created this internal tension that I've had to deal with for the majority of my life. So when your father first came to Tucson, was he emigrating to the United States or was he seeking asylum? It's a complicated situation. He didn't really intend on staying when he first came, to tu- in Tucson at least. He wanted to be somewhere with a larger Malian population. Mm-hmm. But when he arrived in Tucson, the goal was emigrating because he did not know that asylum even existed at the time. But when he first began to talk to an immigration lawyer about the reasons why he wanted to stay in the United States, she explained that he had an asylum case. Do you have an idea of how long your father was in the United States before he was able to bring any of his family over, your, your mother and yourself? My father was actually very fortunate. Back in Mali, he had been um, blacklisted from his industry and then had a little bit of trouble when he tried to go through a legal course. Um, His case was buried. So when he first arrived in the United States, it was because he had been working as a janitor for the U.S. consulate and formed a really great relationship with her and uh, was able to get a tourist visa for himself and my mother and I. And um, after two months, he then called for my mother and I to come over. That also gave him time to save for our plane tickets. Obviously, being uh, able to establish a personal connection to the consulate is a unique thing or special thing in your case. But Abby, what would you have to say in contrasting Umu's experience and her family's experience with what you know about other immigrants from Mali or from that region? Ever since I've been involved with Alampanta, we haven't had uh, that many refugees or asylum seekers from that region. Okay. But I can speak to my own experience. I came several years after Umu's family came. And much like Umu's father, I didn't know about the option of asylum. I just knew that I had to leave Zimbabwe. And I was fortunate enough to get a a student visa to this country. And after I got here is when I discovered that uh, I could apply for asylum. Are global refugees and asylum seekers being impacted by the volatile Trump immigration policies as much as those from south of the border? Definitely. I'll give you one example. So last year, this time, we had resettled about 2,500 people, a little more than 2,500 people. This year, same time, it's a little more than 1,000 in Arizona. And and those numbers in, in Pima County... Uh, slightly even less, like it's like 80% below. There's been a decrease in, in how many people we as Americans are welcoming into this country. And that is definitely related to the current administration's policies on refugees and immigrants. I work with children a lot, not only through Alan Panther, but also at a high school with a high population of refugee children, and also through dealing with my own family and extended family over the phone, on Skype, things of that nature. And I have witnessed a very disturbing decrease in the sense of security that children feel. They don't understand the policy. They're very young, but what they do know is that their parents are scared. 
and that translates to how these children behave in their own communities they're not as willing to go out they're very cautious of getting in trouble in school or anywhere else because their thoughts are well i'm being watched and my family might be targeted and we may be asked to leave well let's take a moment and talk about what you have built for yourself in the united states uh, what's your education like and what's your goal your dream I recently graduated from the University of Arizona. Um, I majored in political science with a minor in gender studies because I've always had a deep interest in how people of various intersecting identity groups interact with our state legal system. Um, so that's propelled me into an education in law. So starting this fall, I'll be attending Arizona State to study criminal justice. and. After that, we will see. And Abby, you want to tell us something more about Umu? Umu, and I'm, I'm very proud about this because Umu is a dear friend of mine. Um, Umu is also a Sandra Day O'Connor scholar at ASU. Why? I know you can't answer this. Why can't people see this potential? <sighs> yeah, that's, that's a good question. You know, one thing that I always try to remind people to counter the misinformation that's out there mm-hmm. is that Refugees and immigrants do not come here to take. We are people who have lost so much. We are here not by choice, but by necessity. And a lot of us, if not most of us, come here and enrich the society. We enrich America. And I wish, I wish more people would see that. What are some of the most progressive voices on immigration and the refugee system saying that give you hope? Can you think of something? Even before this very trying time in the immigrant community, I have followed Sean King, who is an activist for not only immigrants or Black Americans, but um, an activist against injustice. He said that in trying times, we really see the strength of our community. And that's what I have seen here in Tucson. It's not just the refugee community, it's all of Tucson. I have seen more people at rallies and marches than I ever have before. Not only to protest, but to listen and understand. And the sheer outpouring of human empathy in the face of such human rights violations has been invigorating. My guest was Umu Keda, who is in her first year at ASU as a Sandra Day O'Connor Scholar studying criminal justice. She was joined by Abby Hungway, Managing Director of the Refugee Aid Group, Owl and Panther, in Tucson. You can hear more of our conversation and find links to groups that provide refugee resources at azpm.org. The music of La Circa is intricate and intriguing, and it comes from the heart. The band's latest release is called Night Bloom. Next, you'll hear lead singer, songwriter, and guitarist Andrew Gardner, joined by guitarist Bill Oberdeck, perform songs from that album in this Spotlight session. Playing songs and writing songs and being in a band is something that done since I was a very young boy and it's become a thing where it's just like 
I can't like not do it. Bill, what's it like for you when you hear one of Andrew's new compositions? It usually has a uh, you know, sort of structure to it and, and a melody. It's catchy, it makes a lot of sense. And then it takes me, you know, months of just playing it on my own, like often on an acoustic guitar, just kind of figure out like, where's a good place to have something added here? Where, you know, a little melody, a somewhat different harmony in there. For, you know, the session that we did today, like just playing these songs, I actually figured out a few new parts for these that, that aren't on the record, which <laughs> I wish they were on the record. Cause like, oh, that's really cool. Nice, the door's open Porch light and then fire outside Starlight in the dark evening light I can see a smile So I was surprised to hear you tell me that you typically in the band play electric guitars because I felt like your acoustic sound was so natural. What are some words that you would use to describe a good acoustic guitar sound? I kind of let my fingers sort of mold the sound, but also just allowing the strings to ring out. And when I hit it, like I mean it. (laughs) So yeah, I, I feel like I'm just trying to to complete a circuit between the heart to the instrument to the audience. I can dig into the fire The feeling spot keeps me alive demonstrated a lot of intricacy today in the in the songs you were playing for for us and I wondered how much of that you think you chalk up to practice and how much you chalk up to a kind of telepathy you might have evolved at this point telepathy no it's it's a lot of practice yeah yeah it's we've we've played together a lot
So I heard you say that the title of your latest album is Night Bloom. That has a really nice uh, feel to it because I feel like the best music is the music that sounds like it was recorded at 2 a.m., you know? <laughs> well, this music was very much recorded at 2 a.m. Um, Night Bloom and, and the subject on the album cover is a serious plant that only blooms once a year. There was a night feel to these songs, like they were kind of darker and but also very alive. Bill, what do you remember about those sessions? What's something that stands out when you think about the creation of the album, Night Bloom? Uh, well, we recorded it in Tahunga, California, which is a really cool little town just outside of Los Angeles. Uh, it was sort of a special time to be, you know, when you're recording at night, like, you know, everyone else is asleep. Everyone who's good is in, in bed and we're <laughs> up in the middle of the night for a week on end and we put down some good songs, especially the Easy Target. I thought it was like really cool to record that. What gives you right? What gives you rule? Nowhere your destination. some sort of introduction or tell me something about ruins and what that song symbolizes i think ruins is is about being young um but also about like having made mistakes and also trying to move on from the mistakes and to not let a broken heart be broken forever about how you can move forward and how we change i mean we, we're always evolving as people our cells are recreating ourselves so we're not really the same people we were say when we were 20 years old but also like allowing others to change and allowing the change to happen within ourselves someone's love found that it's lost town is left
I like the lyric joyride off a cliff. That's actually um, my uncle and his brothers were checking out a car, and this is probably, you know, early 70s, and they took it on a joyride and it fell off a cliff. And they were okay, but they uh, messed up the car and <laughs> I, I saw an article in the paper about it. That's all I saw. So it's more than just a family legend. It's actually happened. Yeah, it actually happened. I, I could kind of relate to the whole thing to a certain extent, you know, of like, you know, you took the fun a little too far. <laughs> pattern that you can identify about when a song comes to you? Is it words or chords or is it the mood that comes first? Sometimes it's just a matter of playing things. It's like I get something that I'm playing on my guitar and it feels really good to play it. So that turns into this thing that I play over and over again. And then it's like, oh, maybe I can put a melody to it or something like that. Like I've got a, a piece right now that's in an altered tuning. So I have a guitar sitting around in that tuning and kind of waiting for that melody to come. you just heard was written by Andrew Gardner, performed by Andrew Gardner and Bill Oberdick. La Circa's new album is called Night Bloom. The music in this spotlight session was recorded and mixed by Jim Blackwood in the AZPM radio studio. You can listen to the songs at azpm.org. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. You can find our podcasts on iTunes and through the phone app NPR One. The show originates from the AZPM radio studios. AZPM's news director is Andrea Kelly. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.